Hey ya girlies, it's me, Devlin Camp. This is a special queer serial announcement coming to you from the future, 2023. You're listening to an episode from the past, during which you might hear me plug some bonus content, especially in the credits. But as of 2023, here's everything you need to know if you want more queer serial, or if you want to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects. I got a lot going on. You can sign up for periodic email updates at the link for everything in the episode notes. First off, you can now listen to my entire backlog of Queer Serial bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, just like you listen to the regular episodes. Just head to the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to additional bonus episodes for $2.99 a month. Those episodes are everything from my Patreon, minus the visual stuff, but all of the bonus episodes. It includes all of the spin-off episodes, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riots interviews, all of my Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for $2.99 a month, or still for $3 a month on Patreon if you want the bonus episodes and all of my visual research and my archive dives included, and behind the scenes of my Randy Wicker documentary. Also, If you're a Spotify kind of girl like me, you can also get all of my bonus episodes through Spotify now too. Just go to the podcast section and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. And if you wanna get some gay merch while also supporting my queer history projects, check out the new Queer Serial Etsy shop. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There's a link in the episode notes here. I've got podcast merch from throughout the series and also lots of queer history related items like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar and Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always straight from the Wicker and Johnson archive that I've been working on. And I've got gorgeous mugs that say queer history is world history. Other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested. And I've got these warning stickers that you can put in textbooks that are lacking queer history to warn future readers. Lots of other buttons and other stuff on Etsy too. There are links to everything in the episode notes here and at QueerSerial.com or just search for me on Instagram, Etsy, Patreon, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I think that's everything. While you're on QueerSerial.com, by the way, check out the new episode guide. You can explore the entire podcast series episode by episode with all the research and transcripts and bonus episodes and lots of photos and videos from the true history that I cover, all at QueerSerial.com. Finally, last thing, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, go ahead and catch up on all four seasons of Queer Serial and the bonus episodes before season five comes out this October, Queer History Month. The new season is a standalone story in our history and a spin-off of an event that I briefly touched on in Season 3, Episode 7, if you want a hint. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for all of your support. I literally couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. This podcast includes text from real homophile-era publications, letters, and organizational documents read by voice actors. The show contains identifying terms that may now be out of date. Hello? Is this Mrs. Branson? Yes. This is Dr. Kinsey of Indiana University. Mr. Owen wrote me about you, saying you would like to meet me and would be glad to answer my questions. Helen has just opened her bar for the night. A call from Dr. Kinsey is completely unexpected. 
She's across the country in Los Angeles and has never met the sexologist. She knows of him the same way the entire country knows of him. His books, Sexual Behavior in the Human Male and Female, brought awareness to the spectrum of sexuality. When Harry Hay read the first book in 1948, he was inspired to create the Mattachine Foundation. Now, Dr. Kinsey communicates with the Mattachine, although Harry Hay is long gone from his organization, taken over by conservative assimilationist homosexuals. Whether or not Kinsey agrees with the new leaders of the Mattachine movement, there is still education and work to be done, as the U.S. Senate rallies against so-called sex deviates on nationally televised hearings. Now, Dr. Kinsey wants Helen's experience running a gay bar on record for his Institute of Sex Research. They meet at his hotel. As the door opens, Helen is greeted with a charming smile and asked to take a seat inside. Dr. Kinsey reaches for his notepad, and they begin. Mrs. Branson, why do you prefer owning a homosexual bar? Probably two or three reasons all in one. First, my customers are clean Neat, polite, thoughtful, and are easy to handle. I have very few problems with them. I worked in regular cocktail bars for years as an entertainer, and I dislike trying to get along with drunken women. Now, I do not allow unattended women in the bar, although I welcome any woman brought in by my regular customers. Also, the most important reason, I think, is that I can be myself with these boys without misunderstanding. I can be vivacious and yet know that it is not a signal for someone to make a pass at me. Again, referring to my entertainment days, I was so tired of telling someone to keep their hands off me or assuring some drunk that I did not make a practice of going home with the male customers, that my association with gay fellows is a welcome relief. Kinsey smiles as he writes. Mrs. Branson, I've received almost identical answers every time I have asked a woman owner of a gay bar for her reason for operating one. Now tell me how you pay off the police. I don't. They don't come in. You surely give someone a free drink or a case of beer, don't you? No, I don't. They don't come in. Do you hire a bouncer? No, I don't. Don't you need one now and then? No, I go on the theory that offense is the best defense. I am rude to an unwanted character, and because I look like a lady, he is so surprised he just leaves. Anyway, if anyone hit me, I think all the fellows in the bar would take him apart. How do you control the men's room? I don't have to. The boys police it. If anyone gets out of line, I hear about it soon. I take the offender aside and warn him that another complaint will result in an 86. This takes care of it. After 90 minutes of questions and stories exchanged, Helen leaves feeling that she's leaving an old friend. A few days later, Dr. Kinsey is hosted by the Mattachine Society at a roundtable discussion. Helen's Melrose Street bar comes up in conversation, and Kinsey says he's skeptical of some of her answers. The Mattachinos assure him she's honest. Well, if that woman runs that bar the way she says she does and the way you say she does, then it is the only bar in the United States that is run that way. He's right. 
Most bars serving homosexuals in 1954 are subject to police abuse at any moment. The bar can be shut down for what police consider a disorderly house. In these bars, people of the same sex cannot even touch, or an undercover cop in plain clothes might go for his handcuffs. When police make arrests, the newspapers print the names of the homosexuals in bold type, sometimes on the front page. Name, age, home address, employment, and marital status. The result is often divorce, wrecked careers, loss of credit and home, and sometimes suicide. There is no challenging the newspapers or the police. There is no gay voting bloc to elect officials to change these policies. There is no rioting in the street because no one has been organized as a group to resist the powers of police and government. Helen Branson's bar survives because she allows homosexuals who appear masculine, she only allows men, and she likely only allows white men. If she has the peaceful relationship with the police she claims to have, it's likely because of her strict rules of exclusivity. The rest of the queers can find a different place to gather. And if the lesbians, femme men, gender nonconforming people of all kinds, and all queer people of color can't share a space like the Mataschinos have, where they can gather safely for a drink, a place without the pressure of the police, then they will have no choice but to take over the movement. This is the serialized story of queer liberation in America from day one to Stonewall. I'm Devlin Camp. Seattle, 1950. In the offices of Pacific Builder and Engineer magazine, the new associate editor takes her seat at a meeting with the magazine's sister publication, Daily Construction Reports. Just out of a small-town reporting job where she interviewed Eleanor Roosevelt, Phyllis Lyon is looking for something new. Born in Tulsa, raised in San Francisco, and a journalism graduate of UC Berkeley, Phyllis is quickly moving up. Her co-workers take their seats at the table. The new editor of that sister publication enters, Blouse and Slacks. Phyllis catches her eye, which drifts down to see a briefcase in her hand. Phyllis has never seen a woman carrying a briefcase. She can't suppress a broad smile. Dell notices her big brown eyes, trying not to look at her. Dell has just moved to Seattle from San Francisco, too. She grew up there, also studied journalism at UC Berkeley, and worked on her school paper. Meanwhile, Dell casually dated men under the assumption that it was something she was supposed to do, and it was always awkward, so she arranged double dates. She always found the other girl more interesting, but she never said it out loud because she's probably the only person in the world who feels like this. So after meeting a nice guy, she convinced herself she was in love and married James Martin when she was 19. Two years later, she gave birth to Kendra, all while writing letters to the woman next door. James eventually found the letters, and he could tell Dell loved the neighbor more than him. After the divorce, Dell won custody of her daughter. The judge somehow wouldn't accept the lesbian letters as evidence of a real affair. And then Dell was on her own with Kendra. So she found a job, and shortly after, she found a book called The Well of Loneliness. It's about two women who met in the First World War and fell in love. Dell raced to the library to see what else she could find about women attracted to women. There wasn't much, but explanations of sexual deviance as a sickness. Dell realized. Women all over the world must be experiencing the same story. Finding love, finding the well of loneliness, and finding little else to support what might actually be a common trait, an identity, 
a culture. Until finally, they find each other out there drinking in bars. Della went out and made new friends, some of them secretly lesbians. She told two of them, This is what I am. And they said, We don't think you are. But we know about these bars up in North Beach. <clears throat> Hello, young lovers, whatever you are, I hope your problems are few. All you cute butchers lined up at the bar, I've had a love like you. Del felt like a tourist in these bars, absolutely amazed, not really knowing what she was seeing. Women in suits sang in some North Beach bars. The clientele were clearly sexual deviants, with slicked-back short hair leaning in to whisper to another woman, this whole secret world is right under our noses, right down the road. Del thought, What does this mean for me? As she explored her new world, James remarried and asked for custody of their daughter. As a single mother working on a pay-gapped salary, Del accepted, on the condition that she sees Kendra regularly, and she moved north to Seattle for a new job. In tailored women's clothing, Della arrives in 1950 to meet her new co-workers. She thinks Phyllis has a flirtatious style, and she's quick-witted. Phyllis throws Del a welcome party. Over two years, Del and Phyllis become good friends. Del thinks Phyllis straight, as people not only under that 1950s McCarthy-era repression, but also their own repression as they come to understand themselves as homosexuals, it takes a while for the subject of queer attraction to be mentioned in a safe space. But one day, as they're out for drinks at a bar with a friend, it does. Well, I ought to know about that subject because I am one. Silently, Phil thinks this is one of the most interesting things that has happened in a while in Seattle. She can't stop thinking about it, even calling her friend on the phone to ask, What does it mean to go to bed with a woman? Dell shows up at her apartment. They're having a drink. The half-glances, an intrigue on both of their minds, it's unshakable. Dell makes a tentative move, a half-move, Phyllis thinks. She makes the other half. Phyllis goes on a trip with her sister, spending plenty of Dell's money calling her collect every night. When she returns, she tells Del that she has to move back to San Francisco to be with her family, which Del understands. So Phyllis finds an apartment on Castro Street, and by February 1953, Del moves in with her. Here to stay. A 26-year-old typist at RKO Movie Studios is told to look busy, but not to knit. So Edith Ide types up what she calls... Vice Versa, America's gayest magazine. It includes essays, poems, and short stories about lesbians, all written under Edith's pen name, Lisa Ben, an anagram for lesbian. She types two originals with five carbon copies each and passes them around between friends. A magazine dedicated, in all seriousness, to those of us who will never quite be able to adapt ourselves to the ironbound rules of convention. Lisa Ben writes a prediction in volume one, number four, of Vice Versa. Whether the unsympathetic majority approves or not, it looks as though the third sex is here to stay. With the advancement of psychiatry and related subjects, the world is becoming more and more aware that there are those in our midst who feel no attraction for the opposite sex. It is not an uncommon sight to observe mannishly attired women or even those dressed in more feminine garb strolling along the street hand in hand or even arm in arm in an attitude which certainly would seem to indicate far more than mere friendliness. 
Homosexuality is becoming less and less a taboo subject, and although still considered by the general public as contemptible or treated with derision, I venture to predict that there will be a time in the future when gay folks will be accepted as part of regular society. Just as certain subjects, once considered unfit for discussion, now are used as themes in many of our motion pictures, I believe that the time will come when, say, Stephen Gordon will step unrestrained from the pages of Ratcliffe Hall's admirable novel, Well of Loneliness, onto the silver screen, and once precedent has been broken by one such motion pictures, others will be sure to follow. Edith Ide wrote that prediction in September 1947, more than five years before Dell and Phyllis moved in together. Over a difficult first year together in San Francisco, Phyllis works for an import-export firm, and Dell is a bookkeeper for Mayflower Moving and Storage. They buy a car, mortgage a house, and Dell's daughter moves in. It's tough, but they don't break up. Phil makes Dell breakfast every morning for a week because she thinks that's what the more feminine partner is supposed to do. Dell lights Phyllis's cigarettes for her, being the assumed butch role. But they quickly start to realize that they don't have any interest in playing these roles. They don't need to be reliant on each other like that. They can be equals. Despite a shared interest in books and politics, Dell and Phil know they need to socialize with others. They know a gay male couple, and they know some heterosexual couples. But of course, many queer people can only click with heteros on a limited basis. Speaking from experience here, the pair decides to seek out lesbian friends. May 25th, 1955, the San Francisco Examiner lands on their doorstep. State fights bar hangouts of deviants. A new statewide agency called the Department of Alcoholic Beverage Control, or ABC, is created to take over liquor authority after a raid on Tommy's Place. Tommy's Place was a lesbian bar, and in the fallout of the police raiding the bar, voters were encouraged to pass a measure splitting up the state board's tax and the state board's liquor regulations so that the state can better police liquor, which often means liquor sold illegally for queers in bars. But let's put a pin in the ABC. We'll come back to that. Essentially, there's a new crackdown on lesbian spaces. Without the bars, there are little, if any, safe places for lesbians to find each other. Dell and Phyllis tell the male homosexual couple they know they'd like to meet some lesbians, but with the bars being raided so much lately, it's scary to go out to them. The bars are no longer an option. So the men introduce Dell and Phil to their lesbian friend, Rose Bamberger. Hello? Hi, Phyllis. This is Rose. Listen, we're starting a group. There's six of us. Would you two like to be part of a group of women like us? A social club for lesbians. Yes! Dell! <clears throat> Vice Versa magazine editor Lisa Ben, or Edith I, writes songs for the gay gals in Los Angeles. Scattered are we over land, over sea. How many we number will never be known. Each one must learn from the start. She must wear a mask on her heart and live in a world set apart a shy secret world of her own here's to the days that we yearn for to give of our hearts as we may love's always love in sincerity given despite what the others may say the world cannot dare to deny us 
We've been here since centuries past. And you can be sure our ranks will endure as long as this old world will last. So here's to a fairer tomorrow when we'll face the world with a smile. The right one beside us to cherish and guide us. This is what makes life worthwhile. The right one beside us to cherish and guide us. This is what makes life worthwhile. Rose imagines a place where the girls of SF can dance. Safe in someone's home, not caught by police or stared at by tourists passing through San Francisco looking for a crazy night in a strange queer bar. You know, like a bachelorette party. At their first meeting, safe inside a living room, there are four lesbian couples. They discuss a name for their little group, something vague enough that no one will know they're lesbians, but if they want more people to join the group, it has to be something lesbians will recognize. Musketeers! Hobbyus corpus? Amazon? No. No. Chameleon! No. No. Kiv. Kiviv! No. Belitus. Belitus? In 1894, Pierre-Louis published a collection of erotic poetry called Songs of Belitus. His poems feature Sappho, who herself was a poet from the Greek island of Lesbos and believed to have been sexually attracted to other women. Louise created a fictional woman named Belitus, who seduces Sappho. The sensual 19th century poems of Louise are reprinted in a paperback edition in 1955. Under the mysterious name of Belitus, the women can draw in other lesbians in the know, and to the outside world, they will appear to be a Greek poetry club. This reclaiming of their queer ancestors, one real, one fictional, this naming of their group, the Daughters of Belitus, is their one and only unanimous decision. Friday, September 21st, 1955. Mary and Noni, June and Marcia, and Dell and Phyllis all meet for dinner at Rose and Rosemary's house to decide what the daughters of Belitus will actually do. Notes are typed up as they decide that the officers will serve six-month terms and business meetings will be on the first Wednesday of each month at 8 p.m. They establish some guidelines for inviting new members. Some of them push for an open-door policy for anyone to join them. Some of them want to keep requirements strict, including a 21-and-up rule. But most importantly, each member must be... A gay girl of good moral character. The following month, on October 5th, they create an insignia with the shape of a triangle, unknowingly using the same shape Nazis used to mark homosexuals. They choose blue and gold as their colors, and a motto, Qui vive, French for on the alert or on guard. After approving a constitution, bylaws, and rules allowing men on specific occasions, they elect Dell president. Noni Frey is vice president, Phyllis is secretary. Next week, each couple will bring a dish to one of their three monthly functions, social, business, and discussion groups. Their discussion groups will soon be called a Gab and Java. They don't know about the Mattachine Society. Not yet. But their group forms in a very similar way. So similar that some history books refer to them as the women's auxiliary of the Mattachine. It's like if a tabloid of this era said, here's Arthur Miller and his girlfriend, 
Oh, you mean Marilyn Monroe? He didn't create her, she made herself, but oddly enough, they will end up working together. Same goes for these organizations. Anyway, the first official meeting of the daughters is at June and Marcia's home. Del and Phil try to invite one of their first lesbian friends, Sandy, but she can't come because her girlfriend has no interest in associating with a lesbian group. Del and Phil have a bit of luck, though. They sponsor some guests named Bobby, Tony, and Gwen. Noni and Mary bring Elizabeth, and they discuss any and all thoughts they haven't been able to discuss their entire lives. As they come to realize there are other groups out there, they decide to write to the Mattachine Society and One Incorporated, which prints One Magazine, that sort of spin-off gay magazine covered in the previous season of this podcast. They also write to the National Association for Sexual Research and to the Cory Book Service in New York, which was recently launched by Donald Webster Cory, who wrote The Homosexual in America, another book that tells homosexuals they're not alone. To all of these services, the women announce their club for lesbians and hope that word spreads. The more the women gather, the more books they find that have shown them a vast past of lesbian culture. Some bring The Well of Loneliness or The Homosexual in America. Others found a book written by Ruth Fuller Field under the pen name Mary Castle in 1930. Her book, titled The Stone Wall, is a proudly sexual autobiography detailing her relationship with a woman named Juno. They share copies of their books and more women start to show up in the daughters' homes for meetings. All kinds of women bring unique ideas of what they are. The Belitis founders begin to realize that sometimes the only thing you have in common with a person is that you're both queer. And that is a hard lesson to learn. But often, they learn new points of view because of their differences. Some of them work blue-collar jobs, some of them white-collar, some have children, others don't. DOB is pretty diverse in race and class, especially for their time. Rose is Filipina, Mary is Chicana, their partners are white, and they're all mostly accepting and open to each other's ideas. The most divisive issue is that some want a social gathering, while others want social activism. Some want homosexuals to present themselves as respectable citizens. Others believe they can be respected and still show up wearing pants instead of a dress. When three women show up in men's clothing, some members panic a bit. Noni and some other members busy themselves in the kitchen. Del and Phil attempt to entertain the newcomers, but find it's not easy. Some people can't get over the brazen cross-dressing. Peg looks pretty rough and tumble, Phyllis thinks to herself. Peg sits there in her pants, quiet, uncertain of this group. The only time she speaks up, she says, I certainly wouldn't be willing to carry a DOB membership card. If I did, someone would find out I'm a homosexual. As if it wasn't obvious, Phyllis will later say. Whether she's obviously queer or not, in these early days of DOB, gender nonconforming people will have to look elsewhere for support. For instance, Peg will later open a lesbian bar called Peg's Place. That'd probably be the place to go. Many of these butch women will never return to DOB. Can you blame them? They're already giving up their safety in the world by embracing the so-called butch label. It's hardly worth adding their name to an official group of lesbians if those lesbians don't welcome them into their home, pants and all. Some daughters resist the butches for fear of exposure. Gonna sit right... Let's see. Oh yeah, gonna sit right down and write my butcher letter. And ask her, won't she please turn? And I started writing gay parodies to popular songs. And boy, they went over, you know. The other evening, just for fun, I tried her clothes on one by one. 
I look so cute with slacks and shirts on. Now you won't find me with skirts on. Gonna march right down and get myself a haircut. I'll look as handsome as can be. So I guess I'd better write my butcher letter and ask her to turn fan for me. I'm only kidding. And ask her to turn fan for me. <laughs> In November, the 11 members hold a special meeting to redefine the purpose of the Daughters of Belitis. If slacks are worn, they must be women's slacks. No meetings held at non-members' homes. They open membership to all women. Interested in promoting an education program on the subject of sex variation and for sex variance. They continue to debate whether they're a secret lesbian social club or an activist group in the burgeoning homophile movement. Will they go bowling and horseback riding or fight for their rights? Something's in the air, though. It's not a coincidence that these organizations are all quietly, simultaneously having the same realization. Winds are changing. Word is spreading across the country of another woman fighting for her rights, refusing to give up her seat on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. Many of the daughters hear a similar call. Rosa Parks leads her community through the streets, refusing to take buses through 1956 in protest of racial segregation. These early, brave steps are felt across the nation in San Francisco. The members who would rather socialize at a bowling game, who aren't moved to fight with the daughters, they drop out. January marks the last recorded meeting for Rosemary. Rose leaves the daughters, too, and Gwen soon after. June and Marcia move away for work. Noni leaves to start two lesbian sororities nearby. Dell and Phyllis are frustrated. Like Henry Gerber in Chicago and Harry Hay in Los Angeles, it's difficult to find professionals to join and risk their reputation and work. Dell and Phil decide they'll throw a party to give the daughters of Belitis one more try. If you can't get enough gay history, check out my bonus podcast for additional episodes for $3 a month on Patreon. A whole bonus podcast. It includes standalone stories, deep dives into stories that didn't make the cut. We'll follow characters from Queer Serial's main storyline on their own journeys, and I'll have discussions between me and some of the real activists from the movement. Subscribe now at patreon.com slash queer serial. Click the link in the episode notes. This episode is supported by Stitcher Premium. You can join Stitcher Premium for all kinds of fun shows by using promo code Mattachine for one month free. Listen to some of your favorite shows ad-free with Stitcher Premium, like My Favorite Murder or my favorite podcast, The Rachel Maddow Show, in addition to Stitcher original shows like Wolverine, The Last Trail, or You Must Remember This, The Hollywood History Podcast. Plus, get access to exclusive Stitcher content, bonus episodes, comedy albums, and more. It's only $4.99 a month or $34.99 a year. Go to stitcher.com slash premium to sign up today. Use promo code Mattachine for one month free. Nineteen forty-seven, eight years ago. Johnny Phelps, a women's air command service member, meets with her commander general, Dwight D. Eisenhower. It comes to my attention that there are lesbians in the women's air command. We need to ferret them out. Phelps looks at the secretary there with them. If the general pleases, sir, I'll be happy to do that. But the first name on the list will be mine. The secretary adds, If the general pleases, sir, my name will be first and hers will be second. Sir, you're right. 
There are lesbians in the WACs, and if you want to replace all the file clerks, section commanders, drivers, every woman in the WAC detachment, I will be happy to make that list. But you must know, sir, they have no illegal pregnancies, no AWOLs, no charges of misconduct. Eisenhower takes a moment. Forget the order. Yes, sir. Johnny's Women's Air Command troop, like Helen Branson's bar, was an exception to the rule. Some places in the military were safe for lesbian women, often even forming baseball teams. But once additional forces are less necessary in the war, lesbianism, or even suspicion of it, was an easy reason to send women home. Jay Bell, a very tall woman nicknamed Shorty, returns home to Seattle. After the dishonorable discharge, she met her new girlfriend, Billy. And as Billy said, Shorty was accused of being homosexual, so she decided to find out what that was. Shorty and Billy Talmadge move to the Bay Area and meet Dell and Phyllis. Despite being a public school teacher, Billy is ready to join the daughters along with Shorty. At that one more try party on June 14th, Carla, Pat, Brian, Griff, and Helen Sandy Sandoz all join too. Yeah, their old friend Sandy. She broke up with her girlfriend and the daughters took Sandy in. Perhaps what opens the door to new sisters is their focus on their education, not just socializing. Perhaps it's their recent decision to ditch the secrecy of the club. It's at this meeting that they decide to launch what they call an all-out publicity campaign. Just as the Mattachine Society's new magazine is taking off, the daughters announce their own newsletter. An article will appear in Mattachine Review and also one magazine will give us space. They write up a press release and consider adding, we are against communism, but they decide that since they are fighting for civil liberties, it doesn't really matter whether or not they print an anti-communist statement. They then agree on a statement of purpose and their steps to create social progress for the homosexual. You might recall in Season 1, Episodes 5 through 9, that this is most of the fight and a schism between members of the Mattachine, anti-communism statements, and using the word homosexual. The daughters tie it up pretty quickly. Daughters of Belitis, Purpose, a woman's organization for the purpose of promoting the integration of the homosexual into society. They share similar goals with the Mattachine Society education of homosexuals, and the public on their issues. Also, they intend to seek support from religious and medical authorities. And also... Investigation of the penal code as it pertains to the homosexual. Proposal of changes to provide an equitable handling of cases involving this minority group and promotion of these changes through due process of law in the state... Seeking approval from authorities while also demanding respect from them is a little edgier than the Mattachine and the perfect woman to balance on that edge, who is happy to demand respect from authorities face-to-face, attends her first meeting in this boom of summer 1956. Barbara Giddings walks into the room to see about a dozen women talking. And I think, wow, all these lesbians together in one place. I've never seen anything like it. When she returns home, she's thrilled to spread the word. But let's put a pin in Barbara Giddings. Here's a song I like to sing. It's, it's not really gay, but it, it is when a girl sings it. Yellow bird, a pie and banana tree. Yellow bird, you sit all alone like me. Did your lady friend leave your nest again? That is very sad, make me feel so bad. You can fly away in the sky away. You're more lucky than me. 
Back in San Francisco, the daughters begin holding public meetings, part of the educational component. So many lesbians are scared of being labeled illegal, immoral, and sick by the state, church, and doctors, so the DOB aims to teach them about their rights. These public meetings are a way for women to show up to a kind of discussion group, but they can say, I'm not queer, I'm just here to learn about the issue. The goal is to teach more women self-esteem and understanding of their homosexuality. The daughters invite the executive director of the ACLU San Francisco branch to teach them that it's not illegal to be a homosexual and that they have rights when dealing with the police. The ACLU is one of few civil rights organizations willing to work with homosexual activists. Attorneys and psychologists also come to speak with them, educating them on actual facts. 40 to 50 women typically show up to listen. When Dell and Phil meet with Mattachine and One Inc. members in Los Angeles, they find inspiration in these small groups, especially One, whose magazine blends social activities and social action. By the end of the summer of 1956, 16 daughters host parties, discussions, picnics, and business meetings for untold numbers of women hoping to make contact with other women like them. But socializing is just the beginning. Once they reach out with their publication and make contact with the wider world of lesbians, the letters will flood in, bringing a sea change. Their attorney, Mattachine recommended Kenneth Zwerin, he finishes their application to incorporate as a not-for-profit organization in California. Despite their constitution's open use of words like homosexual, they keep their nonprofit paperwork more discreet. So discreet, Zwerin says, They could have been a society for raising cats. In many ways, like the Mattachine, they wear a mask. But on the other hand, their Articles of Incorporation welcome all women, regardless of race, color, or creed. They balance safety where it's important, and they progress in ways the Mattachine will never come to understand. It's this official incorporation that pushes the daughters forward. For those who doubted our legality or our permanency, we can only say, see, we're incorporated, and we're here to stay. The girl that I marry will probably be As butch as a hunk of machinery The girl I idolize Will wear slacks with fly fronts, tailored shirts and bow ties Dell and Phyllis and the daughters get an office in a suite that's rented by the Mattachine Society at 693 Mission Street, their new national headquarters in San Francisco. She'll walk with a swagger and wear short hair And keep me entranced with her tomboy air Instead of cruising, I'll be using Her shoulder to lean on while snoozing For the present, you can reach us via the phone number of the Mattachine Society. Our own private phone is still a future project. Phones cost money, you know. A faint-hearted fairy, the girl that I marry won't be. Dell looks out the window of their new office, a decent view of the city's Tenderloin neighborhood. Down below, on the sidewalk, a woman stands across the street, looking up at the building, examining the address she has written down. She's pacing. Every so often, Dell sees her. Every so often, the daughters see a different woman pacing outside, down below, taking weeks or months to knock on their door. In the office, daughter Brian O'Brien sketches two women, one in a skirt, one in tailored slacks. She draws them down below, looking up a ladder, which reaches into the clouds. Looking at the drawing, the daughters find their magazine's title, The Ladder. 
It's likely unintentional that the daughters utilize a similar uplift ideology, once used by women of color in the first wave of feminism, but their goal is the same, to elevate women out of self-hatred and claim their self-esteem and human rights. It's time to climb the ladder, rise up, and take every woman with you. Perhaps even vice versa might be the forerunner of better magazines dedicated to the third sex, which in some future time might take their rightful place on the newsstands beside other publications to be available openly and without restriction to those who wish to read them. In these days of frozen foods, motion picture palaces, compact apartments, modern innovations, and female independence, there is no reason why a woman would have to look to a man for food and shelter in return for raising his children and keeping his house in order unless she really wants to. Never before have circumstances and conditions been so suitable for those of lesbian tendencies. A long memorandum is printed at FBI headquarters, information about the Mattachine Society. They are the subject organization of this FBI memo. On the bottom of this stack of papers is an additional section with the misspelled headline, Daughters of Belitis. An FBI agent writes, According to information received in March 1956, the above organization is in the formative stage with headquarters in San Francisco, California. It is composed of women whose aim is to solve the many problems of the lesbian lesbian mother. The daughters of the Belaitas are the ladies auxiliary of Mattachine. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves... Allen Ginsberg's poem Howl gains popularity. Christine Jorgensen opens her act in Chicago. Many queer people in the mid-50s see hope ahead. But when Mattachine Publications director Hal Call visits Chicago that summer, he finds their chapter practically dormant. It seems some cities are progressive because they are exceptions to the rules. Chicago police have scared activists from rising up. With every step forward, an FBI memo sends agents hunting. With every bar opening, local police find a reason to raid. And now in San Francisco, a law and order mayor has been elected. State fights bar hangouts of deviants. A new fury is sweeping through the city's safe queer bars. Taverns shudder all over the bay. The city is full of gay bars to be shut down. And there are so many because of how previous mayors have been running the police department. The police department has an established tradition of controlling gay spaces like the Black Cat, which was able to open way back at the turn of the century for queers because... Actually, put a pen in that, tie a thread to it, and follow me back to San Francisco, 1821. Next week, on Episode 2, Disorderly Establishment. But don't go yet, that's not all. I have another story for you. And I'm sorry to say there's been a murder in Midtown. Join the bonus show at patreon.com slash queer serial for bonus episodes. This week's forgotten fairy tale follows a wealthy socialite, his bisexual lover, and a romance that 1930s New Yorkers called So sordid, it shocked even the hardened police. Remember Helen Branson at the beginning of today's episode? She wrote a book published by the Mattachine in 1957. Join me on Patreon and you can get a copy of Helen's book, Gay Bar, about her Melrose Bar. I only have a few copies left. Patreon.com slash Queer Serial. 
Patrons also get bonus episodes, buttons, gorgeous mugs, photos through the research process, transcripts of episodes. You can also ask any questions on Patreon. I'll answer them all. Patreon.com slash Queer Serial. Proceeds from Patreon will go to fund my next queer history project. If you're a teacher looking for transcripts of episodes, contact me on QueerSerial.com. A huge thank you to some of my top donors who waited very patiently for season two. Bradley Sterenberg, Erica Pitcarn, and my scorned ex-lover, Mark McGovern. Keep donating to the show, Mark. Maybe you'll win me back. This season is also brought to you in part by the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence San Francisco. The Sisters are a leading-edge order of queer and trans nuns who have devoted themselves to drag, street performance, and activism since 1979. To learn more about their events, visit thesisters.org. Thank you, Sisters. The podcast is also brought to you by a special donation from the Fellowship of the Phoenix Chicago Chapter. The Fellowship is a queer neo-pagan tradition and nonprofit organization serving the unique needs of the LGBTQ community. To learn more, visit fellowshipofthephoenix.org. Edith Eyed Audio. I would also say to them, as I, to, to the girls, as I passed the magazines out, I said, now when you get through with this, don't throw it away. Pass it on to another, another gay gal. We didn't use the term lesbian so much then. We just said gay gal. Mm-hmm. Courtesy of Making Gay History. Find the Making Gay History podcast on all major podcast platforms and at makinggayhistory.com. A huge thank you to Eric Marcus and all the folks at Making Gay History Podcast for allowing me to use the real recordings of Edith Eyde's songs for gay gals. Aren't they amazing? Check out more of her songs and Eric's interview with her at makinggayhistory.com. It took Eric 26 phone calls to get in touch with Edith because he only had her pen name, Lisa Ben, and that she lived in California. Check out the Making Gay History Podcast for more of his incredible interviews. Also, thank you to Caitlin Litterer for sending a massive file full of Edith Eyde material. Did you know Edith also wrote sci-fi stories under yet another pen name? I'll be sharing tons more Edith Eyed material at Queer Serial on Instagram and Twitter and Patreon. And I was darned if I'm gonna, I was going to do it just because everybody else did. I mean, I, I'm a girl and I've always been a girl. The only difference is I like girls. <laughs> Resources for the podcast can be found at QueerSerial.com. A favorite use for this episode is Different Daughters by Marcia Gallo. She wrote an incredibly comprehensive and fun book on the story of the Daughters of Belinus. You'll hear plenty more about them in the podcast this season, but check out Gallo's book for many more fascinating details. For more visuals and stories that didn't make the cut, check out the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at Queer Serial. I've recently posted photos of Dell and Phyllis, the voice actors who play them on the podcast, and those early issues of the latter. Queer Serial on Instagram and Twitter for previews of next week's episode, too. Please, 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 if you have a sec, rate and review the podcast on iTunes in order to boost the show to new listeners. And share the podcast with any of your friends and family. They don't have to be queer to enjoy it. The show is suited for gays, straights, asexual folks, anywhere on the Kinsey scale. Voice actors. Helen Branson was played by my granny, Faye Camp. Hello? Yes? Yes? Alfred Kinsey and the San Francisco Examiner Reporter by John Roth. Del Martin by Salvi Ogato. Phyllis Lyon by Jane Serenska. Rose Bamberger by Jen Freitag. Butch Pegg by Damika Victorian. Daughters of Belitis by Marissa Clayton. Jen Dentel, Adrian Barker, Olgi Freyer, Anne-Marie Freyedo, Natalie Guzman, and Courtney Tesh. Edith Eide, a.k.a. Lisa Ben by Courtney Tesh. Except for when we heard the real recordings of Edith Eide. Dwight Eisenhower by my grandpa, Steve Camp. Johnny Phelps by Olgi Fryer, Secretary by Maggie Smith, Barbara Giddings by Clarissa Janelle, Kenneth Zwerin, Sam Pancake, much more to come from him. 
FBI agent by Mike Lysak, and Hal Call by returning star Dominic Caruso. A massive thank you to all the actors, friends, and family who donated their time and talent to the show. Music is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0. The original Mattachine Society Jester logo is used courtesy of One Archives at USC Libraries. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Devlin Camp. See you next week. 1947. You had guts. Well, it uh, surprises me now, too, reading back. That's pretty bold stuff. Well, I guess it is. I never thought of it as being, uh, being bold at the time. I was just, uh, as I say, I was just sort of fantasizing. But it all has come to pass. <laughs> what Makes has... me feel like a fortune teller. <laughs> yeah, that's key to the D. <laughs> if your disposition's gay, be mighty glad you're made that way. Don't frown, cause your world's upside down. Why should you be thought a fool for not conforming to the rule? It has its advantages abound. Now the ladies are the fairest sexes everybody knows. Their charms are emphasized in ads and even moving picture shows. I can't convince the fellows I'm not daffy in the head cause I'm saving all my kisses for the little gals instead. Mama Nature played it smart when she tied a string around my heart and said, no, 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 no to me. My kind of loving's lots of fun, but I'm glad when all is said and done, there's no, a no responsibility. Now science claims it likes repel and opposites attract. But since I've been in Hollywood, I sure don't hold that that's a fact. Whenever I see a likely lassie swaying down the street, I must curb my natural urge to whistle at each one I meet. Never act as though you mind if people sometimes seem unkind. Keep smiling, though you may be blue. And no matter what you are, if you hitch your wagon to a star, you'll find your share of happiness, too. That's wonderful. <laughs>